If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, um, we're looking at uh, the verses that we're looking at are in your bulletin on the inside of the bulletin. We're looking at Mark 9, verses 1 through 13 today. And as I read this, if there are things in the story that confuse you, if there are things in the story that make you go, huh, wait, wait, I don't get what's going on here, don't worry. Don't worry, you're not alone. But friends, listen, this is God's word. And he, this is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one, and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. This is the passage that is as mind-blowing when you understand it as it is confusing when you read it the first time. Okay? Um, there are things that, uh, that come out of this passage that will teach us things about Jesus that I will dare say you did not know or were afraid to think. In order to understand this passage, you can't really understand what's happening here or why it's happening until you connect it to what just happened in Jesus' life. Okay, And Mike preached on the passage right before us last week. It says there that um, Jesus started to teach his disciples something new. In Mark 8, verse 31, uh, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so this is Jesus' mission, to suffer and die for the world. This is going to be the most, the, the most awful thing, the worst thing that Jesus could imagine having to endure. But this is God's great mission. This is the mission, God's great mission to save the world, and it has a price. The price for this mission is that Jesus will have to suffer and die. That's the path to the great mission of saving the world. Jesus' suffering will be awful. It will be humiliating. And it will look to everyone like he is a complete failure. And so I want you to imagine Jesus telling, finally telling his disciples about this. 
Right? He's finally coming clean that this is what is going to happen. He's finally opening up to them the excruciating mission that is before him. I mean, when I think about this, I imagine that what Jesus is looking for is support and encouragement. But what happens? We saw last week that the disciples actually rebuked Jesus. Peter takes him aside and says, you're wrong. Jesus, this is wrong. And so in the moments when Jesus is looking for encouragement and understanding, for support and love, what he got was rejection from the people who were closest to him. Can anyone relate? We have to understand the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was truly human in a way that we can't understand. Jesus wasn't a fake human. He wasn't God sort of in the shell of a human being. Um, Jesus was truly human. And the Bible says that Jesus learned, that he grew in wisdom and knowledge. There were times when Jesus actually needed to be strengthened. Did you know that? Let me show you this. In Luke chapter 24, verse 43, it says, And there appears, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is pouring out the night before he's crucified. Um, it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. That moment in his life, Jesus needed strength. Now, this might throw a wrench into some of your thinking about Jesus. Right? Jesus needed strength? He needed help? It doesn't make any sense. But here it is in the Bible. Jesus, and this isn't the only place. I don't want to, sh- I mean, I can show you lots more. But Jesus was needy. He actually had needs. He struggled. Life was difficult for him. It was frustrating. It was painful. Okay, Jesus wasn't like Superman, triumphalistically walking through the difficulties of life with bullets just bouncing off of his chest. Right? That's not Jesus. And it's not just the humanity of Jesus either. The entire Bible teaches us that God is affected by his people. Hey, we're reading Jeremiah in City Bible Reading, and you can't read that without seeing the heartbreak of God at the unfaithfulness of his people. That judgment from God comes through tears. That when God's people reject him, it hurts. It hurts God. It hurt Jesus. I mean, what this means is God is in a real relationship with us. Right? A real relationship means that you are open and able to be hurt. If you can't be hurt, there's not a real relationship. If there's no possibility that the person can hurt you, there's no real love there. If there's no risk involved, there's no real love. And so, when Jesus opens up and reveals to his closest friends that he's going to have to suffer, to be tortured and then executed by the religious leaders, their reaction was devastating to him. They're not on board with his mission. And so Jesus realizes at this moment that he is alone. He is alone. Even the twelve, the people that he's invested his own life in for three years, they're not on board, they don't believe him, and they are not with him. Can you relate? I want you to know that Jesus can relate. 
man, maybe there's something in your life that you have hidden, something you've had to suffer through. You've never told anyone because you're afraid of what they might say. Um, you're afraid of how they would react. I've got friends who are in the gay community who have gone through a living hell of their worst nightmares coming true. Because when they finally come out to someone, they are absolutely thrown under the bus where they're kicked out of their homes or they're ostracized. Or people who have been abused. And when they try to speak up, they are blamed for the abuse. In marriages, kids with parents. I mean, parents who make their kids believe, well, this is all your fault. If you weren't this way, I wouldn't react this way to you. That rejection, that sense of isolation, I think that's what Jesus felt when his disciples didn't stand with him. As he came out to them about his mission and what it was going to take for God's great plan to save the world. And I think this is why what happens next in Mark's gospel happens next. God moves to act for Jesus. And I think this is going to blow your mind. So what we're going to see here, if you want to take notes, just a couple of points. We're going to see that God did this for Jesus, and he did this for the disciples. And as we understand what God was doing, we're also going to see that this isn't just for Jesus but it's also for us. It's not just for the disciples, but it's also for us. And so, let's look first at how God did this for Jesus. Verse 2, it says that Jesus took three of the twelve, Peter, James, and John. This is probably an inner circle. We see these three show up. Um, I think Jesus invested more specifically in these three in a special way. Um, And they go up on this mountain, and God meets them there. And what does God do? God brings two people who appear and talk with Jesus. You see where it says that? It says verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah, why? Why them? Let's think about who Moses and Elijah were. Moses was called by God to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land in the Exodus. And Moses' leadership was incredibly difficult because either the people didn't understand or they didn't care about God. They were rebellious and they constantly complained. And at one point, God even said this to Moses in Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 and 10. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. These people are arrogant. This is God talking. He says, Now therefore... Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So God is saying, look, I'm done. I am done with Israel. Moses, get out of the way. Let me take care of them and I'm going to start over with you. God brings Moses because Moses knew what it was like to be alone. And have everyone around you reject you and reject the path that God put in front of you. In a unique way, Moses could say to Jesus, Jesus, I get it. 
I was rejected. I had to lead, and I had to follow God's path alone because I alone wanted to follow God's path. Now, Elijah, Elijah was a prophet. Elijah was sent to lead God's people out of slavery to this ungodly and awful king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. But Elijah was rejected and had to flee for his life. Elijah was on God's path, but the people wanted to remove Elijah's voice from the earth and him along with it. And so, having run away, Elijah is alone in a cave. And this is what Elijah prayed. In 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And so Jesus may possibly in his humanness have had a moment of, of unsurety. Like maybe Jesus was confused. Maybe he was unsure. Maybe he's wondering, well, maybe the disciples are right. Maybe I have misread this whole thing. Um, he might not have felt that way, but at least we know he was lonely and frustrated. And so to Jesus, Elijah could personally say, Jesus, I know how you feel. Elijah could say, by God's strength, you can do this. Because even though everyone else abandons you, God will not abandon you. And my life is proof of that. And so Moses and Elijah could come to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, this is our calling. It's to stand alone. The people around us are so needy, they don't even know that they're lost. And we, we have to intercede. We need to stand between God and his people. Because worse than being alone actually is being rejected. And so Jesus, even with your 12 disciples, yes, this is your mission. And so what is God doing here for Jesus? God is loving Jesus. You see that? God is bringing the two people in human history who could best relate to what Jesus is going through and what he's about to go through. God wants Jesus to get assurance that yes, this is your path. Yes, this is the path to the great mission of saving the world. Jesus, this is the path of real greatness. It includes suffering and death. You are not wrong. It includes even being rejected by the people who are closest to you. This is God communicating through community. This is God recognizing that in his humanity, Jesus can't do this alone. Jesus needs community. He needs the assurance of community. Friends, don't we need this too? Man, don't we need this? We need assurance from other people. We cannot do 
the life. We cannot live the life God's called us to live on our own, and God doesn't even want us to try. God never meant for us to be alone, and so even when he has to do a miracle, a miracle like this, he goes out of his way to bring Jesus the assurance of community. And friends, we need the same assurance. The path to save the world continues. We're on that path if we're following Jesus. Right? The path to see our friends know, through, know Jesus, the path to see our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors know Jesus is also through suffering and death. And when our lives get difficult, God wants us to remind each other you're not doing it wrong. Suffering is part of this path. Even if other people oppose you, the path that God leads you to greatness is the path of suffering. And so, friends, all of us, every one of us, both need friends and need to be friends who can remind us of this when life hits the fan. So I just want to ask, are you in close friendship with other Christians? Are there people in your life that you can go to, and not even that you can go to, but who are just already there in the normal pattern of your life so that you're not wandering alone? When was the last time you told someone that you really needed help, that you really needed prayer? When was the last time you were able to say to someone else who's suffering, Look, I don't have all the answers, but one thing I do know is that Jesus seems to have walked this path before you. And so your suffering might actually be a sign that you're on the right path. This is why we have life groups. I mean, life groups are designed to be the place where those relationships can begin. Or you can have some measure of honesty. And I get it that sometimes being in a small group where there's more than one or two other people there, it can be hard to share. But that's just where it starts. Our life groups are like incubators for these kinds of relationships. And we need to be in them. There's a list of our life groups in the back of the bulletin. But that's what they're designed for. They're designed for us to be able to be this kind of community assurance for each other. But this is what God was doing for Jesus but it wasn't just for Jesus. This whole event, this experience was also, this is point two, this was also for the disciples. Because Jesus didn't go by himself. Right? He took with him Peter, James, and John. They were invited up on the mountain to experience this with Jesus. And so what did they see? Well, they saw Jesus shining. Right, verse, the end of verse 2, verse 3, transfigured before them, his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And Peter, James, and John, they would have immediately thought, oh, wait, 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 we've seen this before, we've read about this before, we've imagined this in our minds, this is what happened to Moses. On Mount Sinai, when he went up on the mountain, he met with God, God's presence was there, and Moses was so close to God that, that God, the brightness of God's glory, actually caused Moses' face to shine. And so Moses would come down the mountain and he'd be glowing. And here, though, what they're seeing is that Jesus is even better than Moses. Because Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God. He is radiating the glory of God. 
in Matthew's version of this, it says that Jesus' face, not just his clothes, but his face shone like the sun. And so what we have here isn't a commercial for Tide bleach, but this is actually Jesus in and of himself radiating the glory of God so much that the clothes that he's wearing shine brightly. I mean, think about Galadriel, maybe in The Fellowship of the Ring, um, when she begins to manifest the power of who she is. This is Jesus showing who he really is. And they're seeing that. They're seeing that Jesus is, wow, we knew he was more than we thought, but now we really see that he's even more than we thought. They see Moses and Elijah, but then they also, they hear God the Father affirming Jesus. See that? There in verse 7, it says, A cloud overshadowed them, which is what happened on Mount Sinai. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. What God is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 2-7. And the reason that's important is because Psalm 2 was the psalm that was pronounced, prayed over, and sung to every king at their coronation. Psalm 2 was the place when God's kings, when the next king of Israel would take the throne, and this was pronounced to them. They weren't just king of the people, but they were pronounced to be the sons of God. And so God is telling the disciples, Peter, James, and John, this is the king of Israel. And in fact, this is what kingship is. Jesus, the great one. And his path of suffering is the path to greatness. It's as though God knows about the conversation that just happened before they went up the mountain. And it's as though God is telling Peter, James, and John, Look, I know you have different ideas about what it means to be great. You have a different understanding of what it's going to look like for me to renew the world. You have a different idea of what it's going to look like for someone to be the Messiah. But I want you to know that Jesus is right. Jesus is right. This is the path to greatness. You need to listen to him. God is saying, look, it's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. That's the whole Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. These things give way to Jesus. I know you think there's a way for you to be great. I know you think about your life being great. I know that you have ideas about what it would be like, and your ideas tend to be the world serving you, you having power, you being the one in charge. But this is my son. Listen to him. So friends, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? As we, in a sense, walked up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, as we beheld this and now understood, I mean, again, we're scratching the surface, but understood some of what this is. What do we do with this today? Well, I want to ask you, as God was confronting Peter, James, and John, what's your definition of greatness? What's your definition of a great life? What's the life that you're striving after? Does your life include a commitment to suffering? 
Does your life include a commitment? I mean, do you argue with Jesus? When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, and you realize he's not saying wear a cross around your neck, but he's saying, I want you to live a life of suffering, do you argue with him? I mean, the extreme version of taking up your cross um, is persecution, right? And Mike, last week, brilliantly talked about the twelve and how actually all of the twelve followed Jesus literally by picking up their cross and suffering death for the sake of the gospel. And I think this hits home. If you want to know what it means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus on his road to greatness... Come with me to South Carolina. Even this week, did y'all see the video footage of the families of the deceased, of the murdered victims, confronting their murderer? There's so many in the world who want to destroy this man, who want to use what's happened to bring anger and rage and, and war into our country, who want to use it for political gain. But I want you to listen to what the families of the victims who are part of this church said, because they are following Jesus on the path to greatness. They are full of greatness. One of the people said this, I would like him, talking about the killer, to know, I forgive you. My family forgives you. Please take this opportunity to repent. Confess what you've done and give your life to Christ so that he can change it. He sat down and then a woman stood up and said, We welcomed you Wednesday night into our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And I will never be the same. He was my son that you killed. But he was my hero. But just as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you. May God have mercy on you. Then one more. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and their legacy is love so that hate won't win. Friends, these people in South Carolina who were closest to the ones who were executed, they are picking up their cross and they are following Jesus down his path of greatness. And this is what it means. It means absorbing their sin. I want you to think about this. That that's what crosses do. That's what Jesus' cross did. That's what he invites us to do. When he says, take up your cross, because of what Jesus has done, now there's a new reality. And if you want to write anything down in your, in your notes, this is what I want you to write down today. I want you to write down that crosses... Absorb sin. Crosses absorb sin. That's what they do. 
That's why Jesus says that to follow him and to follow his greatness, pick up your cross. Because that's what Jesus did with his cross. He took on our sin. And instead of retaliating, instead of getting back at us, he absorbed it and he died. Like this is greatness by God's definition. This is the greatness of people who have been persecuted. And this is greatness worth following. This will radically reshape your life and how you think about responding in life if you choose to listen to the Son of God. When you think about relationships, right? if you realize that your mission in life is actually to absorb sin, it'll change everything. Nothing can be the same when you realize that God's mission for you is in part to absorb the sin around you and to respond with love and forgiveness and understanding. That will change this city. That will change this country. That will change the world because it will change you. It's renewed people who will renew the city. And it's only by following Jesus' greatness that we can do this. And greatness this is what it looks like for you, very practically. It means showing up in your relationships, showing up at work, showing up at home, showing up in your neighborhood. It means showing up to serve. It means listening and understanding. It means not retaliating, not taking vengeance. It means being inconvenienced consistently. Okay, you and I think, you and I think that a great life is a life where we just get our way. A life that's relatively easy, where there aren't inconveniences. And we think, we think that when we're inconvenienced, man, something's going wrong. Do you know how I know that you and I think that? It's because how do you react when you're inconvenienced? Right, you're mad, you're angry, you're pissed, you're like, ugh. We don't realize that that's actually the mission of God. The mission of God, your mission in the world is to absorb the inconveniences and not to retaliate. Man, it's not about getting your way. It's about sacrificing your comfort. It's sacrificing your entertainment at home, at work, in your neighborhood. If you do this, you're going to see benefits. You will see benefits. Your relationships will change. Your marriage will change. Your parenting will change. Your work relationships will change. Because again, you will change if you do this, if you embrace this. But, but there are also going to be people in your life who will take advantage of you. There will be people who make fun of you. There will be people who don't appreciate you at all. And they won't see any of the sacrifices that, you're, that you make. And at that point... It's at that point when you desperately, what you, what you desperately need most of all in that moment is to hear that when you do that, you are my beloved son. In that moment, when you choose to sacrifice and to serve, when you choose not to retaliate, in that moment when you choose to absorb the sin that's been done to you, you are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. I want the world to listen to you. Friends, the gospel teaches us that God is pleased with us in Christ. 
And he wants to work in us so that we can be like Jesus. So that we too can be agents who will absorb the sin of the world, who will absorb the sin that's around us. So that, think about this, like think about this vision. This blew me away when I thought about this week. So that from the time you wake up until the time that you go to bed, there is less sin in the world because you have absorbed it and not retaliated. When you respond this way, when you respond the way Jesus is inviting us to respond, when you listen to Jesus in his call and his path to greatness, at that point when someone sins against you and you don't retaliate, that sin goes away. That sin is not around anymore because you have taken it and you have said to someone, I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to let this go. And the idea that we, by picking up our cross, might walk through the world day in and day out. And at the end of the day, there's less sin in the world because we've absorbed some of it. And instead responded with grace and forgiveness and understanding. Man. Dads, how would this change you? Father's Day is designed to appreciate the best qualities of fatherhood, right, in a way that is incredibly gracious. Family members, kids, they can sort of like sweep all the bad stuff under the rug for a while and just appreciate the good stuff, right? Father's Day is designed to appreciate dads for the best version of who they are in the family. It's about affirming these qualities, where you lead by sacrifice, where you lead by understanding and caring, where you lead with loving leadership. Dads, what would it be like if we could be fathers that carry our cross in the home? Fathers who reflect and who display our Heavenly Father. And how different would your kids be if they had a father like this? And I want to just remind you that, look, we cannot get there on our own. We cannot get there on our own. We have to be in community because we can't consistently believe this with all of the other versions of greatness that are bombarding us all day long. The television tells you there's a way to be great. The radio tells you. Your iPod tells you. Work tells you different ways of being great. And if, we don't have, if we're not talking about this consistently, if we're not reminding ourselves about what real greatness is, if we're not telling ourselves and reminding ourselves that this is the path of Jesus' greatness, we will lose. We will not follow Jesus. We will put down our cross and take up comfort. We will take up a domineering attitude. We will take up a need to be right. And we will think that makes us great. Too many voices without this. And so, I mean, this is for dads, but for all of us. I mean, let's make this a Father's Day that will last forever. Because every time you follow Jesus and pick up your cross, 
the way that you act will last forever. When you act in this way, when you're willing to absorb sin and forgive it, that action will last forever. That action will be rewarded and it will fill God's new heaven and earth forever. This is what's amazing is that today we can begin to live eternal life if we're willing to recognize that this is God's beloved Son and listen to Him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for enduring this. We thank you that there is nothing that we have experienced that you don't understand. And we thank you for going the road that we cannot walk down. We thank you for suffering for us. Jesus, we can't act this way. We can't follow you even until we realize that you did this for us, that it was our sins that you absorbed, and it was our sin that you exchanged for your love. Jesus, thank you for walking this path in a way that we never could, so that we now could walk with you. Oh, renew us and help us to carry our cross, so that in the assurance of community, we would do this and we'd see the city change. Amen.